93% of your life is spent indoors, but so many of our favorite moments are outdoors. The fresh air, the feeling of peace. Since warmer weather is almost here, let's make the most of it with Outer, the new outdoor furniture company with purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials. I love the new outdoor dining table and chairs I just bought. It looks great in my backyard, and it's the perfect setup for hosting a dinner party. Go to liveouter.com slash thefounderhour to see all the incredible products they have to offer. For a limited time, get 10% off and free shipping. That's liveouter.com slash thefounderhour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode of The Founder Hour, the podcast where we dive deep into the stories of remarkable entrepreneurs and innovators. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today we have a truly impactful figure in the world of technology and gaming. He's a co-founder of Activision, one of the most influential video game companies in history, as well as Start Engine, a crowdfunding platform that's changing the way startups raise capital. Join us as we sit down with Howard Marks to learn about his early life, incredible career, the wild story of how he came to rebuild Activision as we know it, and his insights into the future of entrepreneurship and venture capital. Here we go. Howard, thank you so much for being with us today to share your story about how you started, about your early days and um, all the businesses that you've built and invested in. So we're excited to be here with you. Uh, I'm sure you get this question asked a lot, so I just want to get out of the way. How does it feel like dealing with the confusion of being the CEO of Oak Tree Capital Management? Ah, that's so funny. (laughs) You know what? Funny enough, I know the other Howard Marks, and I had a fundraiser in my house, and he came over, and that was fun to take a picture with him. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we intersect a lot. I mean, one of the I, mean, I have so many stories, but one of them is going to London, and I stay at this hotel, and they give me a suite. I said I didn't order a suite. He said, No, no, that is your suite. So he upgraded me to suite. I said, All right. And then later, I was like, Hold on a second. I think they got me confused. <laughs> the old days was faxes. I would reserve a hotel and they would fax back saying, you already have a reservation or some stuff like that. Or I'd go on a plane and say, oh, you already checked in. I love that. That's so ideal. You know, because the thing I think about is, you know, when you do in banking, there's this the KYC, know your client when you're, you know, trying to get debt or whatever. And they try to, you know, do right. all this due diligence on you. If you're doing, if you as Howard Marks, the one who's sitting in front of us is doing that, you'll just be like, are you guys kidding me? I'm Howard Marks. <laughs> like, just, well, just Google me. Exactly. And, and you know what? It's unfortunate <laughs> for people who um, may have a beef against me. Yeah. Right. Because then what happens is the press will write about it. Again, confusing the same Howard, a different Howard Marks. Mm. And it's not working out for them. So, yeah. It's actually a superpower. I like it. Yeah, you're you're the beneficiary of this for well, sure. I am for sure. But you know what? Um, I got a call from one of my former business partners, Steve Wynn, and he called me and said, "Hey, I, I hear you're selling your your apartment in New York, your condo. Um, I think I'm 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 going to buy it." I said, "Hold on a second. I don't have a condo in New York." <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what would be interesting is, you know, and I'm sure this is not an idea I'm coming up with, but having like almost identifiers like personal identifiers as a as a human being 
Like whether it's to have that identifier on social media, as on on title when you own something. Like why? Because there's at a, this point there's so many similar names. Maybe not like Patrick Tanahan and Narcissa Potion. Yeah, but we just Howard gotta, Marks. I we mean, just, we just got to start using our social security number. <laughs> yeah, I mean something. But there's a third Howard Marks. Unfortunately, is no longer with us. Oh, okay, Mister Nice. He was a big cannabis dealer in London, <laughs> in England, and Cambridge educated and ended up in jail. And the day wow. he was put in jail, I was living in Paris then, and my best friend calls my mom and says, you know what, I don't know if you know, but look at the paper, your son just went, just got arrested. Oh, man. And she's like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, he got arrested in, in, in Spain. No, he's not in Spain, he's in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think this is how this podcast was going to start? No. Okay, well, that, that's why we do it. Well, anyways, uh, we, I, we always like to ask where you were born in your early, early days, so... Why don't you take us back a little bit uh, and give us the Howard Marks history? Early days, born in Los Angeles. And until I was four, left, moved to Europe, uh, Germany for a couple of years, and then Paris for the rest until college. Mm. So I kind of did the reverse commute. Yeah. Why, why Europe? Did your parents work? My, my mom is from, uh, was from Romania mm. and was a refugee in 41 and moved and um, ended up in Paris um, and after the war and stayed. And so for her, L.A. was just a little too provincial. Yeah, She didn't like it too much, and she wanted to be back home in Paris. And we ended up there. I loved it. Growing up in Paris in the late 60s and 70s was unbelievable. Now that you've obviously experienced different kind of places what was it about paris that you think was so special at the time well if you if you go back at the at that time france basically was able to rebuild itself after the second world war and there was a whole movement of intellectuals who were really building the next scene of the movie business and and they called it the new wave and writers uh, who were philosophers who wrote books that became world sensations. There was a real a renewal of of culture and arts in the in the late in the fifties, sixties, and then in the seventies, um, France solidified its economy. Things were going really well. Yeah. So it was a good time to grow up there. And you were there for how long? I was there until I went to college. And I ended up moving to and, and, and coming to the States at the University of Michigan. What kind of kid were you? Like, what did you like doing, spending time doing? When you're a kid, you, you don't self-analyze yourself too much. I was more of a nerd. I liked electronics. I liked to tinker. And so I would build my own furniture. I would build little kits, electronic kits. I was drawn towards that. And I also liked the guitar, so uh, I was playing music. Mm -hmm. These kinds of things were great. That you know, a lot of kids do this. I was not interest, interested in high school that much. I, I didn't enjoy my time there. I, I was not. I was a little bit bored. I had no idea what I wanted to do, and I didn't care. I was just enjoying my time as a as a teenager. Yeah, Howard. What did your parents do? My dad uh, was an entrepreneur. He was uh, he he went to Caltech here and then Berkeley, 
ended up working for the defense uh, contra- contract manufacturers and became an entrepreneur when he moved to France and got in the same industry like defense in the, he he went from defense to the mainframe computer systems he was he invented a, a new idea which is to rent out time because people had all these multi-million dollar machines but they were idle at night so he would find ways to to you know a little bit like the airbnb idea for computers at mm. that time interesting and there's the 60s 70s that was in the 60s wow uh, late 60s i would say 68 when we moved to france and uh, 70s and and then you know he stayed for for a while yeah mm. and your mom my mom was a homemaker so um she we had we spoke many languages at home so we had my mom romanian german uh hebrew my dad english and some french i was you know german french english some spanish the housekeeper had spanish it was very mixed mm-hmm. as a as a as a family interesting i never realized that even my mom had an accent i thought she spoke french like everybody else mm. you don't hear it mm-hmm. as yeah. a kid you don't hear um any of that was there like some sort of expectation from your parents to go down a certain path in life yeah absolutely so for me i was supposed to be an engineer and have a career at ibm and my brother he was supposed to become a surgeon or something like that yeah and no (laughs) (laughs) that's not gonna happen that was too depressing what did you have some sort of vision of what you wanted no not at all yeah i i wanted to pursue passion interests and when you look at the high school system in france they don't give you any access to that they it's very rigid yeah the courses are preset you don't have any choices there is no such thing as a personal computer then i had one at home because my dad bought me one i discovered the personal computer was the apple ii and that really sent me in a trajectory Hmm. i I really realized quickly that that is an area i want to focus on you know it's so interesting that like you said, it didn't exist at the time until it existed. And for so many kids that maybe looked at their options of what paths they could go down in life and didn't really feel compelled by either of them. And then this thing comes out, which are computers and the internet and eventually all these other things. And that became such a lucrative career. It's like, sometimes it makes you think like, maybe the thing that you're meant to do isn't even out there yet. And kind of has, you just have to like keep looking and searching until sometimes it's not even up to you it's like just happens right like did for you did it feel that way like when back then did it feel like this new technology was going to be like you should you should spend time in this industry you know like you should go down this path i think your behavior dictates this in a way i was buying the scientific magazines i was already i was interested in science but I was not a mathematician or a physicist, but was interested in it. You know, interest. Oh, it sounds interesting. Read about it. Science fiction, great. Science fiction movies, great. What can the world look like in 20, 30 years? Interesting. I had that interest. Yeah. Sports, not really. Not not really an interest in, in, in understanding it and, and participating in it, even watching it. It was really in that world of science. So when... 
I started with electronic kits. I was interested in that, but I didn't feel that was a career for me. Computers changed everything because it opened up a new world. That world was new. If you think about it, in the late 70s, that's when the personal computer appeared on the market. People were buying it. They, they were called hobbyists. So in a way, we were all hobbyists. We read everything. We, there was no bulletin board at that time where you can share. So we'd go to the store, and at the stores where you would meet other people and you would exchange, and you'd basically buy everything you can mm. and get your hands on. And everything was in a box, so you'd open the box and put the cassette or the diskette or whatever you were using. The floppy disk. It was very hobbyist. Yeah. I didn't believe that it would end up being a hobbyist business. I mean, you think about hobbies like uh, making uh, kits, making your own stereo system, or making your own uh, model plane, your own trains. That's a hobby. Playing, there's vi a, playing there's video a, games used to be a hobby too. I understand that. But at that time, there were no video games. You had pinball machines. Yeah, yeah. But that was a hobby, right? Yeah. And it was fun for people who would pursue. But on the other hand, what different, what's different with a computer is that it opened up a world that was almost infinite possibilities. And so the idea that this would be a hobby, hobby, sorry, it's not, it didn't make sense to me. The more I pursued it, the more I realized it had so many options and applications. And then as you could tell, every year the thing was getting faster. So today the Apple II I had in my bedroom was one megahertz. It was a 6502 processor, one megahertz. Oh, well. What does that really mean? Well, today it's more than a million times faster. The, the one you have on your phone yeah. is more than a million times faster. In fact, you could argue multiple millions because there's all these processors in common and parallel and cores and chips. And in, 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 we're talking about, what, 40 years plus? Mm. It went yeah. from one to multiple million times faster. Now the car did not go that much faster. Yeah, uh, which what, might what, be a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> but it would be nice if we could have like trains planes planes that go up cars yeah. and, you know yeah. hundreds of thousands yeah, go to an paris hour. in you know 90 minutes versus nine or ten hours yeah ideal. how about yeah about half an hour that would be nice one can dream but that's not what happened what happened was this is the only area that every year instead of things getting cheaper they got faster yeah and, and more expensive not really not that well, I much. feel like it went from expensive to cheap to now it's like back on well, the climb there's also of expensive. Moore's law, right? Which is you know it's double as fast, but half the cost. Like it's actually Moore's law is not half the cost. It's double the speed every two years. Double the speed every, every two years. Yeah. Every two years. So there's no there's no cost. Uh, well, here's the thing. Access there. Yeah. It comes down to affordability. If you said, look, I can make this computer twice as fast, but it's going to cost ten times more. No one's going to buy it. Right. Right. So in a way, the price adjusted, if you take the adjusted price, True. it's about relatively the same, maybe actually cheaper now because you know you can buy things for a few hundred bucks. Yeah. Yep. Because the Chinese came in. But at that time there were no Chinese manufacturers uh for for computers, it was all made in the USA mm -hmm. mostly and or in Europe. Right. And then soon then they went into the Orient. But I would say 
it's one of the few areas where you could say in a matter of a decade or several decades, it it's an exponential increase in value yeah. in, in what you can do with it. Interesting. I want to take it back to what made you and what led you to the decision of going to the University of Michigan and coming back to the States uh, when you were, I assume, around 18, 17, 18 years old. Um, what, what led to that? So I graduated high school. Hmm. I had no idea what to do. I didn't apply to no. any universities in the United States. What do you do in Europe? You take an exam. So I passed the exam, did reasonably well. And then you go and apply to schools. That's it. The top schools, you can't apply to them. You have to take an exam and it takes a year or two of preparation. And the other schools, you just show up and sign up. Hmm. More like a community college. Yeah, but it's not a community college. Right. It's a very, right. they're very good schools. Right. And then you have to have certain grades. So to get exam, even into those yeah. schools. Yeah. yeah. If you don't have honors, you probably, they won't take you. Okay. And maybe if there's room, they'll take you, but you, you have priority. Right. So I show up at one of the law schools and literally I walk in, I look at the syllabus and I walk out. <laughs> so then I said, one of my friends went to the University uh, of Paris. It was called ACP, American College in Paris. And I said, well, why don't I go check it out? So I went there and they said to me, hey, by the way, just so you know, we just bought, we just were donated this huge computer I mean, a massive data center that we never had before. And, um, you know, it seems like you're interested in computers. I said, well, hold on a second. What do you, th can I go and see it? So I go there and I'm like, this is amazing. And it's like what, in like a warehouse? It's in, it's in a different office than the than university. university. It was in a, let's call it a, a first floor in a, in a known nondescript building, you know, among, you know, residents and it had air conditioning in it because, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. things are not air conditioned. In it, Paris. Emanates, it emanates a lot of heat too. Yeah. And it was many towers and lots of screens mm -hmm. and there was no one there. In fact, there was one guy who was supposed to be the, the expert resident, but they didn't know much. It was like a playground. And there were books on shelves. Yeah. And I look at it and I think, huh, I think I can do something here. So I enrolled. And the next thing you know, you know, I take classes I'm living over there and I'm reading everything I can, learning everything I can. I start learning new programming languages. I'm just having a blast. And they look at me and they're like, wow, this kid is really interested. And they were talking about, hey, maybe you want to work. And it's like, no, nah, I'm not that interested. I'm, I'm studying. I'm a student. I'm, you know. And that lasted for a year. So while I was there, I realized I, wanna, I really want to study. But there's not a computer science department here. Yeah, there's a computer system, but that's not going to hasn't been established. Yet. I'm not going to be able to get much out of it. So I uh, applied to multiple schools, and one of them was University of Michigan. Not that I knew anything about it. It's just my grandmother was living in Ann Arbor, and my dad said, "Look, there's a great school there." I said, "Never heard of it." Okay, so I applied, and I applied to a few other schools, and finally the decision came: Hey, you got admitted. Are you going to go to this one, San Diego? Where are you going to go? And I said, you know what? I'll go to Michigan. I, ne I never set a, foot there. And they had a computer science department. They had a massive computer science department. Yeah. In fact, I would argue one of the best in the country. Mm -hmm. To this day? 
Or at the time? At the time. It was unbelievable what they had there. Now, keep in mind, again, when I arrived, there were punch cards mm. being involved. Right. So I hacked the computer system, and I hacked my phone in my dormitory so I could actually use my Apple II as a terminal so I don't have to punch cards. But that was not every courses, you know, some of them, because they thought yeah. maybe, you know, you need to know how to do punch cards. Right, right, right. I don't know why, but... And, why, do, and so, why, do you, why do you think the University of Michigan or just Michigan in general was a hub for this at the time? Because I'm assuming this is what, uh, 80s? That was the early 80s, in 1980. Yeah. Now, I can explain it. It's very simple. They have an engineering school. And mainly because think about the auto industry. Mm -hmm. At one point, at that time, I think in the 80, I think Detroit, Bloomfield Hills, Dearborn were the mm -hmm. wealthiest communities in the country. Mm -hmm. Right. They, a lot, and a lot of immigrants. A lot of immigrants, but a yeah. ton of money. Yeah. ton of money was going on over there. We're not talking about today's auto right, industry. Right, right. Yeah. Pre-Silicon Valley. And you had Kmart and you had other right, things. Right, right. But Think about it. And Kmart was enormous, right? Yeah. There was a lot of money in Michigan. And I think the university got a lot of benefit from it. And so they had a computer department, engineering, very, I would call it old school because, you know, everything was old school then. There were old buildings probably from the 40s, but we, were, we had modern equipment in there. If you go today, it's on a North Campus, it's massive. And they're ranked in the top five in, 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 in the country. Even then, I think over there was top 10 or better. It was unbelievable quality. Um, and so I got lucky. It was just, I guess, fortuitous for me to be there and realize that the options for learning were, were enormous. So once you get there, I mean, what... Did you start like being interested in the classes and things like that? Or were you more interested in extracurricular activities? Well, it turns out, um, so before I, I go to um, Michigan, I got uh, a summer job offer by Apple, France. And they saw what I was doing in the computer department. And I came to them and I said, hey, I have an idea. I, I told the university, hey, you should leverage your computer system and make it um, a little bit like an AOL. You have the equipment. Why don't you let people hook up to it and dial in and just rent, you know, rent your space, rent your access. And so they liked the idea. And so Apple said, wow, we're lo actually looking for a system for all our dealers around the country to be able to send messages and, and pay their bills. That was, you know, talking about, late 70s and what spun out of that idea because i wrote some software to show that the apple II could work with it that was the key because everybody said the apple cannot work with that it was called a harris system yeah. but i proved it could that proof led apple to give them a contract and they created a spin-off that became like the aol france interesting i was not involved in the company but my idea went to that level of interest and so Apple, as a reward, sent me a bunch of equipment <laughs> to the dorm and gave me a little stipend. You know, it was very nice of them. Yeah. Couldn't be nicer. And this is still like early days of Apple. It Apple, was Apple the too. time it, it, Apple was only about four yeah. years old, right. maybe five, four or five. Had they yeah. gone public yet? 
Uh, yeah, they were already public by then. Just went public. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Must be nice for a college student. You're just getting all this free equipment. <laughs> I liked it. And so in my dorm, I was using the equipment and I started one of the teacher professors there needed help to make a software program for, on the Apple II educational one, hired me. And and you're talking about 1980, I was getting, he was paying me $25 an hour. At that time, it's like getting today yeah. 100 or 200 an yeah. hour. And I was like, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So I was able to use that money to pay for my education. I thought things are great. And then in the dorm, I meet this guy at the cafeteria who was introduced to me by this girl and we knew in common. This guy, his name is Bobby Kodak. And we kind of hit it off and became friends. And we decided we're going to get the next semester. So that was my first semester, a room together in a different dorm because our dorm was not exactly a good fit for us. Hmm. You know, the kids, whatever. So there was another dorm we liked. So we moved together to another dorm uh, that second semester. And then very quickly, the conversations were, hey, well, okay, school, but what about your computer stuff? Is there any way to make money there? And then he was doing some real estate stuff and I was more interested in computers. And it's like, well, why don't we make money with computers? And so we did some bizarre thing. My dad knew a guy in Paris who created a circuit board that could take a typewriter and convert it into a printer. And at that time, the printers were all dot matrix, were not very good looking. This one, the letters came out like if you typed it. Interesting. And so we made that kit for the so the next year, we we spent the summer working on it, and then in the fall, I think it was eighty, must have been eighty one or eighty two. We I think eighty one. We launched. We put a little ad in a magazine called Byte Magazine. Went on vacation for Christmas vacation, whatever skiing. Came back and we had a pile of orders. Maybe 30, 40 orders. Who were these who were these people ordering? They were people who needed to print. Oh, and they just wanted to do that instead of were there even printers at the time? Well, they were dot matrix printers. Oh, I and see. and you, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's just not very pretty. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. so I'm it's confused. Professional. Though, when yeah. you're using a typewriter though, you're directly printing that ink onto the to the paper. Right. So what what is it that you would be printing? This program would take a digi- digital and it would basically send it to the typewriter and it would print without you actually typing yes yeah you would print without you actually typing it's like a program that that got it got it without you typing on the typewriter the old typewriters were mechanical but those new typers came out had a circuit board and so the guy was pretty smart he was found a way to piggyback another board to put an interface wow that would work was the apple II. right so all these apple II, and there were probably two million people in america who had an apple II had to decide, okay, they get these little crappy printers, but if they bought a typewriter yeah. for 300 bucks and our thing maybe for $100, now they have something that looks great. Right. So you come back to stack of orders. Do you guys just immediately start a business? Like, yeah. yeah. So we were, we were like, oh, my God. So we didn't even have a company. So we started ordering typewriters from 47th Street Photo in New York. They would deliver it to our home. Then we would modify the typewriter, unscrew it, put the thing in. We had to manufacture the board, and we had a, we had a little business. And I think we sold a few hundred of them, and we quickly realized it's not going to work because you can't scale. Yeah, it's unscalable, and so that's fine. So we sold that was great, made some money, and then what's next? So I I 
was reading in all those magazines this thing about a thing called Xerox Park. And Xerox Park invented a language called small talk. And they came up with this idea that instead of having just text on a screen, you could have graphics hmm. and you can have a thing called Windows and you can use a mouse. That was all invented at Xerox. Hmm. Really? And that's where Jobs got the inspiration. Yeah. When, he, when Steve went to Xerox, he saw that and inspired him to create the Mac, but mm. that didn't exist before. Mm. And I said to myself, well, why don't we do this for the Apple II? Now, keep in mind, the Apple II is 48K in memory, which is like if you take a website, a postage stamp, that is the size of the memory. It's like <laughs> a postage stamp on your website. You know, take a yeah, Google. Yeah. It was not that much, right? 48,000 characters. And I decided I'm going to find a way to create a, a system where you have Windows, graphics, the mouse, everything in a 48K machine. What, and, what led you to that idea? Because I read it in the magazine that that's the future of computing, the, the idea that user interface with a mouse instead of a keyboard is easier for people to use. And I thought if we could make this for the Apple II, people, more people could buy the machine and more people could use it than those geeks who are hobbyists and computer yeah. people. This is called a GUI? GPU? I, no, we, we called the program Jane. Ah. And... And we launched it for the Apple. That, that was our new company. It's a new company. And it was a big adventure because we had to make our own software. And you were still in college. Yeah, we're still in college. So we, had to, we went out and needed in, investors. Hmm. And well, we needed some money, we had no money to hire people. And we needed to hire people because I couldn't program it on my own. I started designing it, programming a little bit, but it, there was not enough. So took some of the money we made, not much. And my partner, Bobby, he went to a fundraiser in Dallas and met this guy called Steve Wynn, who owned a casino. He owned the Golden Nugget downtown at that time and told him about the idea, what we're doing. And we're in college. And his wife was like, hey, Halsey, leave these kids alone. They're in college. What are you doing? You know, no, I'm interested in them. I want to help. Anyway, after a, a few conversations, we went out to see him in Atlantic City where he just built the Golden Nugget, the second hotel he had. And we built a business plan that looked really, I wish I still have it. It was two pages. It was written on a typewriter. Yeah, printed on a typewriter. Yeah. <laughs> and it must have been awful. Anyway, he didn't even read it. And he says, so what are we going to do here? He says, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll give you guys $50,000. We'll be one-third each partner. And, and, and what was the idea that he's investing in? So he was investing in this program that at that point we didn't have a name. We ended up being calling, calling Jane. He invested in that. The idea to make computers easy to use for everybody. Got it. And did he even understand what he was investing in? Or no. was it just, you know, anyone with deep pockets at the time was just trying to get in on these computers, this internet, whatever's happening at this time? No, no one was doing that. Because again, you, you're, you're using a reference that exists today where People are angel investors. That didn't exist. Uh -huh. You know, when Steve Jobs was doing Apple, he had to call 200 people to get someone from the computer industry to even care right. to invest. Right. And he's from the casino industry. <laughs> no, he was interested in us as entrepreneurs. Oh. Interesting. So he was just like, I like you guys. I yeah. Feel like and you guys by the way, he gave us the check. We had no agreement. We, had, we haven't issued the shares. We didn't have a corporation. We, we had nothing. We were just two guys in college who went to see you know a, a business mogul 
and so you, said, we want to start a company. So you get this money and what happens next? Well, that's hard. First of all, we, you know, you have to incorporate a company. Yeah. Then we had to find an office space because again, there, there's no such thing as virtual working. Right. So we got a, an office space above a Burger King in Ann Arbor on Liberty Street. And then we hire some people. Now, how do you hire people? How do you find people? Well, we felt, I said, LinkedIn. Oh, so some of my professors. So I went to see the, some of the associate professors say, Hey, would you want to get, you want a gig? And they're like, yeah, we would like to work. So we brought some like that. Uh, we also networked with our students and we found some who were former students or going to be graduated. Some were still students. We had a mix. And so we started coding. And what was interesting is we at one point forgot to pay the well we 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 had an office that was later but the first office was a condo like a condo we rented we rented a condo an apartment and we were working there and at one point we forgot to pay the electricity bill so we had no no the heating bill we had no heating it was cold michigan so we had to use all the printouts of our paper to go into the you know the chimney and, and make a fire to heat ourselves I mean, we, we were so disorganized. We actually slept in the same place we worked. It was cheaper, right? Yeah. And people were coming in and working. I don't know how we even went through that. Anyway, then we moved to a bigger space and we finished the program and it worked. It was working. And you know how it is at that point. It's not like you can put an MVP. You have to finish it, put it in a box. So we found a manufacturer for the mouse. Yeah. The M is the maximum viable product, not the minimum. Right. It had to be a finished product. And yeah. we had the software on multiple diskettes, put yeah. it in a box. We found someone who could manufacture it, duplicate the disks. It was a, a lot of thinking. And there was and how long did this take? Took us about a year. Let's see. I'm not exactly sure. I think about a year. And this fifty thousand dollars was enough runway. Oh yeah. yeah. For the first year but yeah. we started looking at other investors sure then. so we found one of the conditions steve said was that our parents should all put some money in so my parents put in a hundred thousand and my partner's parent uh, uncle and, and dad put a hundred thousand so we had two hundred fifty thousand. how did you convince your parents that this was going to make money that i don't remember exactly i think they wanted to support us mm-hmm I mean, he saw we raised money already, and they wanted to support us, and and I guess they decided to do it. It's I, it's hard to explain it. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, it, I think that happens today. Friends and family they support projects. They may write off the money the minute they give it to you because yeah. it, the risk is very high. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so so we, this was the first mouse. Was Gene the first mouse that was? Out it there? was. It was the first consumer. Package was a mouse. Yes, mm-hmm. there was nothing. There's the, there was no software for the mouse outside of programming stuff. Mm-hmm. It was the first application. It was before the Mac. Keep in mind, it was before the Mac. Huh. No one had software. It was a word processor, spreadsheet, and a database. Yeah, no one had that. So mm-hmm. I designed the whole thing. We implemented it, and then how do we sell it? Ah, there was something going on. There was the thing in Vegas called the Comdex. I don't know if you heard about it. I have heard of it. It was it's I don't know if it still exists. It probably is. And it was sold a long time ago. And the guy who started Comdex, the guy who ended up with creating a Venetian and doing all these casinos. Anyway, Sheldon Adelson. Yes, yeah. So we said, Oh, we have to go to Comdex. So the Comdex, I think it was 
maybe let's call it November of 83. And we need to get in. We call the Comdex and they say, no, we're overbooked. We can't get you a boost. And you need a boost because yeah. that's where all the dealers are coming. So they're going to see you and they can order what you've, you've built or not. We don't know how to sell it. Mm-hmm. So they said, no, we couldn't get our booth. And so my partner, Bobby, he called Steve Wynn and said, hey, this is the problem we have. We need a booth at the Comdex. It's in Vegas. He said, okay, okay, let me call you back. Anyway, we get a call back from the Comdex. said, hey, we got a booth for you. It's great. And we're like, Steve, what, what did you do? He said, oh, I called my friend Sheldon. <laughs> And he said, hey, you still want to rent space in my hotel for your complex? Yeah, okay, you get them a space. These are my boys. Hmm. Great. <laughs> Helps to have Steve Wynn on your side, I guess. <laughs> yeah, big time. Especially when the when this show was in Vegas. Well, guess what? We got also free free rooms so we could actually yeah, afford to go. Yeah. So we were there showing, and guess what? People were coming. Next thing you know, there are dealers placing orders. Next thing you know, there were industry people. The, the founder of, of EA came over to check us out. And we're like... Is that Trip Hawkins? Trip Hawkins. And we're like, what? Who are these guys? They didn't know who we were. It was a surprise. There were no news information. And then... So that was a very successful show for us. We got tons of orders, tons of contacts. We go back to Ann Arbor and we get a phone call uh, from Apple. They said, hey, uh, Steve Jobs wants to meet you. Uh, can you come over? Uh, we're in Michigan. Oh, okay. Well, when can you come over? So we'll call you back. So we whenever Steve can get us a flight and a hotel in. You know, well, Steve has his own plane. <laughs> so we met him at Cooper, at the Cupertino Airport. So we flew into San Francisco. Met him I was at just airport. making a joke, but it sounds like that's what happened. No, no, actually, it oh, did. Okay. And sure enough, Steve Wynn shows up, and we were not going to go by ourselves because we are kids. Yeah. Anyway, we show up in the meeting and and Steve Jobs is not at the meeting. It's the president and CEO of Apple. Anyway, so he researches us very nicely. We have a nice conversation. And he says, okay, what do you guys want to do? You want to sell your company? Well, we're thinking of building around it. And there was really a sensation because I think they knew we were in the right direction. And so they either wanted to help us or buy our company. We weren't sure. And they reached out to you. They reached out to us. Well, we didn't know who to reach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, anyway, meeting didn't go too well because Steve was taking over the room, talking about all his stories. And, they, you know, frankly, they wanted to talk to us. But anyway, he he said, okay, look, guys, um, <clears throat> I, I need to go. Um, but Steve, Steve Jobs still wants to meet us. And so they said, look, Steve wants to meet with the two of you only and show you something. And at the time, Steve wasn't this like magical entrepreneur that he is today. Oh, he was the founder. <clears throat> he was no longer president. But, CEO, but he didn't but he have this founder. like aura of like how big J- Jeff Bezos and how big uh, Elon Musk are today. Did he? I think he did. He so did, he. Yeah. So we go and meet him and he's probably 26, 27. Yeah. So just a few years old. And he looks at guys. us. He says, look, guys, show me your software. So we show it to him and he looks, he says, okay, you should change this, change that, make this different. This is great. Like it, but change this, change that. He was very, very focused on what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And we looked at it and took some notes and he said, look, I'm going to show you something, but you cannot tell anybody. That was, I think, November of 83. This is the Lisa? Nope. 
Okay. And he brings in something covered with a with a cloth, pulls it, and shows us the Macintosh. And he shows us, and he says, look, this is what I'm doing. So he saw what we were building, you know, windows and graphics on a 48K machine. He was introducing a 128K Mac. So more memory, more speed, or maybe it was 256K. I think it was 256K Mac. Unbelievable. And we look at it, and our eyes, you know, we're, we're amazed about it. No one knew this was being built. It was so secret. And it was a game changer, right? I think it was, because yeah. look at the world, how it looks today. Right. He said, you can't tell anything to anybody, but here it is. I wanted to show you the Mac. So he starts demonstrating it. And the first thing he does, he does the paint. Mm -hmm. Because you could take the mouse and brush. And he had a mouse at the time with it. Well, they had a mouse. Yeah. Now, guess what? We were showing him a right. mouse on his Apple II. Right. And he never saw that before. Right, right, right. And so here it was, and then you take the eraser, you could erase. Yeah. And just was in the, in the fonts. He was showing us the fonts. You see, you can make bigger fonts, smaller fonts. It was unbelievable. So powerful compared to what we were doing. We go was, back. Was that like immediately demoralizing in that moment in time? Not really because we thought it's going to take years for this computer to become successful. The Apple II is obviously the choice for everyone. Mm -hmm. what, did, what did you, like what was the lesson there for you? Like in terms of, you're building this thing and you're you're seeing as far ahead as you can and then you you see this new gadget and you're just like shit i wasn't thinking big enough like or far enough of what's possible like did did you learn something that maybe you took with you we unfortunately did not learn the first thing we should have said is we're dead our software is not going to sell for more than a year or two because once this thing comes out yeah you're crushed and it came out yeah. in january of 1984 was a famous ad yep, yep. Two months later. Basically. So about six months later, we go back to um, San Francisco. We were already selling our software, but we're almost out of money at this point. So we were selling well, but you know, you had to build inventory. We had to hire people. And so it was called the Apple Fest and Siege Jobs receives us. Very nice. He said, look, I have an idea for you guys. Why don't you come to this show, bring all your inventory, And it sell, uh, your thing sells for what? Like we said, $100, $120. Sell each of them for $20 because it's easy. Someone just grabs a bill, gives you $20. And these are all the dealers. Mm -hmm. You want them to become a user because if they like it for themselves, they'll, they'll sell it in the store. That sounds like a good idea. Mm -hmm. So we came in with 1,000 copies, right? And next thing you know, every dealer is coming to our show and the word spreads. And we put a big sign that said, Steve Jobs says you, you should buy this for $20, which was true. So anyway, we, we did that, and we were getting $20, and I had this big briefcase in metal, and I was putting all this money in there. By the time the show was done, we sold all of it, and we had $20,000 of cash, and that made payroll for the next two or three months. Right. So we were like, wow. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> you must be onto something. What, what did you think that Steve Jobs saw in what you guys were building? Was it, like, was it about you guys more than the actual product or was it something about the product that was so interesting to him, even though he was already working on this new computer? He wanted to support the ecosystem. And I think for him, seeing two young kids passionate about working with his computers, he loved it. Mm -hmm. And I think 
you hear this a lot. He mentored a lot of people, a lot. And it's not necessarily out there, but he did. And he took interest and he spent time. Mm. And that's pretty amazing to watch. So, Howard, did you guys keep building the company after that point? Or did you guys realize, like, we're going to get crushed if so, this comes out? At that point, the Apple II was booming. We were selling tens of thousands of copies, millions of dollars. And we thought, wow, this is great. And you're like, what, 20 years old, 21 years old? Yeah, we're still in college. But you're and not going to class. Barely. Yeah. And so at one point, we we're like, we can't hire enough, enough people here in Ann Arbor because all the, all the good engineers want to go west. Mm. So it was not necessarily the right place. So we were questioning what we were doing in Ann Arbor. And next thing we know, we're running out of money again because, again, we had a, a very successful product on the Apple II and everybody's starting to buy the Mac. So why would you own an Apple II if you could get the Mac, even though the Mac was more expensive? And it was just clearly a shift and we never predicted the shift. There was no strategy in what we were doing. We didn't do advanced planning. We are just making things. And so... We needed to pivot. So what was that pivot? The pivot we decided was we were good at making software. The Mac had already, App, Apple already had a deal with Microsoft, making stuff for it. So we said, look, we're going to start making things for the IBM PC. Mm -hmm. And Microsoft was there, but they didn't have Windows then. Mm -hmm. They just was DOS. And we said, look, same thing. They have DOS, we'll put our software, and then we'll be the graphical interface mm -hmm. so we made a version for it for the pc and didn't do very well mm -hmm. so then we're like oh my god what are we going to do so we were so we decided basically we we're gonna shut down the company and but we, you had made like decent money yeah but we didn't have any more money and we had to go no. and put ourselves on unemployment go wait in line to grab a check we just didn't have anything else and so the idea came well there are other computers like the Amiga, which was made by Commodore. At that point, was a popular computer system. So we said, okay, well, let's move our stuff there. So we did that, and that's starting to work. We're starting to sell more software. I moved to Europe to build the European division because the Amiga over there was very popular in Europe, and we started making millions of dollars again. Hmm. And so much that we're starting becoming profitable. And again, what we were doing, simple. We went to all the different countries where Commodore was and say, look, we have a software. We'll package it with your computer. So every time you sell a computer, you have a piece of software. The one who invented that really was Microsoft. Right. Microsoft, their idea was to put the software in right. the computer. Right. Early days, the computer had nothing in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at this point, had you already, were you in college, graduated, dropped out? We were, I finished school in 86 mm -hmm. and Bobby never finished. Mm -hmm. So he dropped out and then we were, we moved off, he moved to L.A. where his uh, uh, godfather was living, and I moved to Paris so we can have a European presence. And I and I was, you know, obviously well introduced over mm -hmm. there to do it. And we were building these packages for Commodore, for IBM there, and it was selling millions and millions of dollars. But there's one thing we learned. We learned from the last experience when the Apple II is we're going to crash. Yeah. We're going to die again. Why? Because there was nothing special what we did. We were the right time, right place. We were hustlers. We were able to get these packages sold across Europe. 
and maybe made 10 million in, re- in, in revenue with 2 million in profit. Yeah. So, so it's something that anyone can come and essentially copy. Like yeah, anybody Microsoft. can copy yeah. it. So we had $2 million Yeah, it's not a long-term sitting. sustainable business plan. Well, yeah. there was no real IP. Yeah, right? yeah. And Amiga was dying. We knew that what's going to happen to Amiga is what happened to the Apple II. But at least this time you saw it coming. We saw it coming. We yeah. learned. And so Bobby and we all realized. So he found this company that was a licensing company that was doing licensing for Mario Brothers so that people who wanted to put it on their T-shirt, on soap, they could do it. So we bought an interest in the company as a white knight, spent a million dollars of our money. He thought it would be interesting the office was in New York, so he was in New York. I went to New York to check it out. I'm like, what are we doing here? This is not our business. It has nothing to do with software. Did you even have any interest or know about? Zero the- interest. Yeah. Not even <laughs> close. In fact, the guys who worked at a company, and we, we were taking over the company, realized we had no interest. So the guy said, the guy who was the hired gun said, look, I'll find an investor to take, take you guys out because clearly yeah. we we're like, great. So we got our money back. That was great. But we came in just to help them out. You know, right. it, was, it was stupid. And then Bobby, we're going through all these ideas. He found, he was looking at all these prospectuses, you know, public companies. And one of them was called Activision. And they were public. They were public on the NASDAQ. And he was looking at it and they were going bankrupt. They, they were almost delisted. Their stock was under a dollar. And so we we're like, Activision, we know those guys. We saw them at the shows. They have these games. What were they working on at the time? What was the company? They were, uh, they got rid of the sports division, the Madden football, that they Mm -hmm. got rid of it. EA picked it up Uh and they had. Good move, Activision. They got rid of the people who created Myst, which was ended up being a huge hit. They got rid of that. So that Activision, it was started by these four guys. Four four guys who who left Atari. Who were left Atari. They were like video game, early video game like creators, essentially. And what were they doing? They were just so they went. So they built their whole business on Atari, Mm. and Atari was exploding. It was the most popular toy Mm -hmm. in America. Yeah. And guess what happened? Next thing you know, it crashes. ET comes out on the Atari, kills the video game. Everybody says video games are dead. Mm. It crashes, and and Activision at that time had mostly Atari, and they didn't want to do Nintendo. They said, "Oh, Nintendo, no." They were they bet on Sega, which was a bad bet. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing you know, they were doing also PC software. You know, for the PC, you had yeah. the diskettes, and so, and they also had a database program. And they had a whole bunch of things, and they were running out of money. And they lost a lawsuit against Philips that would cost them like eight to twelve million dollar, mm-hmm. and they had debt, and they were basically bankrupt. They had inventory of cartridges they couldn't sell. The CEO of the company was a lawyer who was put in to clean it up. It was not working. So we found the original investor, a company called BAT, British American Tobacco in, in, in Canada, who owned 30%. The only one that had a big block. Of Activision. Of Activision. The original 30%. You know, they maybe were like a VC at that time. Yeah, and it was like worth nothing essentially at that time. So we point. called them up and said, hey, we want to buy it. They said, really, what do you want? 400000 fine, done. Let's get it off our hands. For their, for, for their thirty percent of the company, so valued at a little, a little over one point two. Yeah, but the company was trading for probably Nothing. eight million, nine million. So it was a, so right a pretty good deal. Yeah, and we didn't understand why they would go part with it for so little. Now it's hard to sell a big block, as you know. 
Yeah. You know, smell, you know, they could sell a little bit. Anyway, could drive the price the down. The CEO of the company, we sent a fax to the CEO of the company saying, Hey, we're now the owners of this shares. We're very unhappy with the company. We want to take over. We want to talk to you. And he's like, Who are you? It's a corporate takeover, you guys. Who are you? <laughs> they were, Who are you? So this guy was not clearly on board to giving us anything. And so we decided to do a proxy fight. And that's pretty costly and expensive. And so we wanted to talk to Steve Wynn about it. He said, nah, let me talk to this guy. Let's see what we can do. So we have a meeting with him. I was named Bruce Davis. And the meeting ended. And I think what happened, I think he realized there's a big backer here. And, and Steve Wynn. Steve Wynn. And, you know. And by this time, Steve, had he opened up the Bellagio and all these other hotels? He opened the Mirage. The so Mirage. he met him in the Mirage. Got brand it. new hotel. In fact, I think the guy was staying there. Yeah. And, and it was the Consumer Electronics Show where Activision was always mm -hmm. showing. And he took some time off to go talk to Steve Wynn. Why not? And I think he walked away. And the next phone call was, okay, let's make a deal. You pay me this. You pay that. Da, 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 I give you the company. And that was it. It's and such a crazy concept, though, that like you could just get in the public company. You're the majority investor. Be like, you're well, out. That's what. Yeah, that's what. I'm <laughs> so we fired the entire. Takeovers. We fired the entire board. Yeah, we put ourselves, and then they decide, we decided we're going to take the company bankrupt. Mm -hmm. So then we went. You were going to go through bankruptcy proceedings. We're going to go through bankruptcy. Recreate a new company. There was too much debt. Yeah, but what about the? What was our IP? Yeah, yeah. Everybody told us before we did the deal. Don't do this deal because video games are dead. And all those titles like Pitfall, River Raid, and Zork, and Mech Warrior, all these things don't mean anything because they're games. No one cares. Yeah. Were you into video games at the time? I was slightly into it. Was Bobby into video games? No, he was not into it. You guys just saw an opportunity. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I played games on the Apple too, but it was not a, I was not an avid gamer. Mm -hmm. You know, I was going to ask earlier, but... What was your relationship like with Bobby? Or were you guys, you know, or how did you guys work together? Was it a good relationship? Is it? Yeah, it was very good because he was the business guy and I was the technical guy. Mm. So our, our roles were very clearly delineated. Yeah. We owned the same amount of equity and, you know, everything was fine. Mm. So you guys acquire it essentially, uh, take, go through bankruptcy. Yeah. And what was the vision of what the new company would be? And so who, the vision how was, did you guys come up the with The vision that? was an acty vision. The vision was, <laughs> hey, all those geeks in San Francisco, this is not a place where you should make entertainment. Yeah. You should be in LA. So we moved. The last, there was 250 people when we took over. We were down to 10. We went through bankruptcy. It was a new company. You know, when, when you go through bankruptcy, the company dies, basically. Chapter 11 company dies it gets restructured all the shareholders get a very small piece we bought out the banks by buying out the banks for a couple million dollars we are able to take control of all yeah. of all the shares and the restructuring and landlord the printer i mean the, the employees there's money you know owed all over the place and there was no yeah. money to pay it yeah and, and i'm assuming you took it private at that point no it just it remains we, we it remained uh, on the nasdaq but we got a notice from the Nasdaq, we're going to be delisted because we were right. below a dollar. So okay, so but when you're a public company and you go, you go through bankruptcy, you can stay listed, or do you have to relist? No, you can stay listed, oh, but okay. again, you have listing requirements, Got and it. we were and you have to meet it. Yep, yeah, we didn't meet the listing the requirements. Mm -hmm. So 
Then we go back to Steve Wynn and uh, another another investor, and we get them to put in $5 million right away after bankruptcy. Had Steve Wynn made any of his money back through his previous investments with you guys? We gave him, he gave us a loan. We gave him his his loan back, but we never, he never made money at that. By no. then, he didn't make money on his equity, but he gave us But he knew know, that he'd be, he'd be whole. He'd be made whole. No, he had no idea. No, I'm saying prior to that, he had been made whole at least, at the very least. No, <laughs> no. He was lending us money along yeah. the way, and then we were, we were able to repay it once we made the $2 million right. in profits. Right. We said, hey, Steve, Here you here's go. your money. We had a dinner with him. And he's like, I don't, uh, what, what was that? I said, that's your money. You lent it. I never thought I would get it back. <laughs> Probably forgot about it. He's like, so, so he's yeah. more of like a donor. It's not even <laughs> no, an investor. He was a true, uh, a true partner, wanted to help. It was not about the money. Interesting. Yeah. It was not about the money. Now it turns out it was a about good, the money. good investment yeah. at the end, but it was not about the money for him. Anyway, we got that money. Then we went to some bankers and raised forty million. And next thing you know, companies relisted, didn't lose his listing, and started doing better. But still, we were losing money. We had to find a solution. Were you just continuing operations as so, it was before? Yeah, we we there were games we had to finish. They were in in the middle of being made, and it was just a bad. How did bad. you and Bobby split your time at that point? What so did you? So I was on? running the studios. Okay, I was making all the games, and so the games were the key. When we went to Walmart or any retailer, they wanted to give us all the stock back, all the games, everything they had that was unsold. They wanted us to take it back, buy it back. Yeah, hmm. buy it back, and you did. Well, no, we couldn't. We didn't have the money to do it. So we couldn't. Why would you them. even want to buy it back? Because they said, we'll never buy from you again if you don't uh, buy it. Uh. So we went and said, okay, look, put it in the bin, sell it for whatever you can, and whatever is left, we'll work out a deal with a credit. You know, we'll work, we'll, we'll, we'll work out a deal. <laughs> and we worked out a deal. That was Bobby's deal. He found ways to get deals. Yeah. You had to make deals because everybody wanted, the company was dead. Everybody, no one wanted to come and work for us. Yeah. bankrupt who wants yeah. to come yeah. you know and were you worried that the activision name was like tarnished by any in any way you're getting very sophisticated in your thought <laughs> there was none of that There's thought none of, because you know yeah. what we had no net uh-huh. it was make this a success we put everything we got we had no more money yeah all the money we made from the previous thing was in there was no net you have to win you have no choice yeah we had all our investors behind us my parents, his family, my family, Steve Wynn, all the other guys, investors. We have to, we have to make it work. And and obviously, you made it work. Well, we were bankrupt every other month. We <laughs> who we it was just very very harsh the first few years, and we had to make games. So now the good news is we, our strategy was simple. We believed that the cartridges will die, and everything will become a CD-ROM, which is now a DVD. That was our our vision. But in order to do that, you needed great graphics, great stories, great art, great music, right. great everything. Not right. like the old games that no. one guy, you know, the, the guys at Activision, one guy made Pitfall. He did the, David everything. Crane. He did the graphics, <laughs> the animation, the design, the programming, yeah. the music. Right. No, this is like a full-on production. So we this decided is... we're going to spend a million dollars per game. Was like, and how did you come up with this arbitrary budget? Because it's more than the 200,000 people were spending. Mm. And people looked at us like, you're crazy. You're absolutely out of your mind. 
a million dollars. So we spent a million dollars on Zork. Okay. And it came out on a CD-ROM and it was a massive hit. It was it worked. People buy it, bought it, enjoyed it. And at this time, were there other video game I'm sure, I'm assuming there were other video game studios who yeah. were yeah that were like building their own but did it feel like it was like this like wild wild west of just whoever can come up with the best game but it's not really like a competition well it was a competition so what we did is we printed on the wall the list of all the game companies from the top which was EA uh-huh. and then acclaim was number two or yeah and we were number 35 And there was uh, Sierra Online, and there was Accolade, and you know, I can give you all the yeah. names. No one even knows who they are yep. anymore. Brother Bruderbond, <laughs> and we were number thirty-five. Hmm. And in every terms of sales, few, in terms of sales, and then every few months we updated it, and we were going up a little bit. So when we released Zork, we went up a notch or two, and when we released MechWarrior, took. Everybody was stormed because it's the first 3D game that used a graphics processing chip. To get a graphics processing chip, you had to buy an NVIDIA mm. in a box, take it open, put in... Today, it's true too. Yeah. Put in your computer. And we were the first, I'd say, 3D combat game to use it. At least a good game. Or maybe they had some demos. Yeah. And people went bananas. And who's coming up with these game story ideas? Well, we had a studio and we had designers and writers. So this is the thing we did different. We decided to hire directors and producers. So like people who were... Like a movie. Like yeah, it's like a film. It's a production. Yeah. Right, it's a production. But we believe in production. Everybody believed, no, no, no. The programmer does everything, you know? Yeah. yeah. What goes, I guess, really briefly, I guess, uh, to summarize, what goes into building a game? I mean, you have to storyboard it and and then just figure out how to build for that story right you need a designer you need a director yeah. so the director comes up with the idea i want to make a robot game i want to do this then they have to get a writer and you do a treatment and then you can put some storyboards and then you yeah. can do some graphic treatment yeah. this is the graphic art now, look we had art directors i mean this is literally yeah, like no a one, film yeah no one was doing that no yeah. we were not making movies no no i'm saying it's like a film like in terms of the we process were, we the, the if you look at linear entertainment which is movies We were interactive entertainment, yeah. so we had to change a lot of things. Right. That's why the movie industry never been able to do it. Yeah, yeah they yeah. can't. They've tried. They've tried. Yeah, they tried. And yeah. Disney, yeah, Netflix has like pick your story. Exactly. Disney has like two percent of the revenue is games. Yeah. But think about this. No one knew the game industry is going to be bigger than the movie industry, but here's the thing: we started making better games, and then as CD-ROMs were becoming popular, it was growing. Why? Because it was richer, better graphics, better entertainment, fun. Oh, and then Nintendo made a smash. Yep. So we Literally. started making games for Nintendo, and then those were still on cartridges, by the way. And then they moved to the CD-ROM. You know, and so at the end of the day, it was a we we had the right idea, mm. and we had IP, and that's what worked. How did the other IP like uh, Call of Duty and some of these other ones come about? Did you go out and acquire this stuff? So I left. Uh, around uh, 98. Okay. And Call of Duty came many years later, you know. Yeah, yeah. So um, well, I guess let's talk about why you left. What happened so there? So I wanted to go and start an internet company. So, but at this time, is I'm assuming Activision's growing. Yeah, Activision was big. I mean, it was doing hundreds of millions, you know, in revenue. Um, not billions as it does today, but it was doing really Did well. Did you see a path to billions? No. 
Yeah. Okay. No, I thought it was going to grow, but I don't think anybody saw, you know, was the Sony PlayStation and all these things selling tens of millions. No one saw it coming. Right. And 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 Bobby just decided, well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to stick around. Yeah. No, he I, I he didn't want to go. I wanted to go because I wanted to start an internet company. He invested in it, and um, I got some local investors to invest, and I wanted to do something, and I picked online learning. Okay. Uh, just to dive into your mindset a little bit here, obviously now you're at a company that's growing, you have a bunch of employees. Are you just somebody that really likes and thrives, likes being in that early stages of building something where like, you know, a company's growing maybe? Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, I had about almost 300 people reporting to me. Yeah. That's and a lot. You didn't like that? No, it was not the most enjoyable, but okay. I think I wanted to, I think the internet did the same thing to me as the computer did. There was something so special about it. And so I wanted to jump in and do something. And, you know, then you had Bezos starting mm-hmm. it and your Netscape and you start realizing. This is like the dot had combo. massive valuations. Yeah. It's a gold rush. Again, yep. one more time. And how at this time in 98, when you left Activision, were you already uh, in a financial state where you were good to good to go? You don't have to necessarily work and build another company or you were still like, oh, I got to keep going. I got to keep building. No, I I was doing fine financially. I I was able to buy a house, get married. Great. All all, all the checks, all the marks were checked. Yeah, but that, I was not interested in doing it for the money. But I had enough money to do whatever I wanted in terms of, you know. And you're what, young? You're still in your 30s. um, 35. Yeah. So I was 35 and I said, you know, internet, let me try something. So I went into online learning and... The idea was to educate people through the computer. Now, mm-hmm. you have to imagine, even though at that time the internet was new, that was still a little early. Yeah. You know, the education is slow to move. It's still been slow. Yeah, but it's, to this day. At least I tried and I ended up selling it to Kaplan, which is mm-hmm. um these lang- these large you know, publisher of yeah. SAT learning yep. and publishing. It was owned by Washington Post and it didn't do well. So I was like, okay, I was a little bit bummed. And so I was reading the Wall Street Journal and and then it said, hey, a claim is filing for bankruptcy. Like, bankruptcy? I know something about bankruptcy. <laughs> and, and I know a, something about a, games. And a claim was number two on that list at some point. It ended up becoming number one. It was bigger oh, than EA. Wow. wow. And what game did they, what was their big game? Um, Mortal Kombat. Mm, you I'm remember Mortal Kombat? Kombat sure, dude. Love Mortal Kombat. Absolutely. Where everybody stopped going to school so yeah, they could literally. go buy it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. That was them. Yeah. And they had NBA Jam and they had tons of games. Oh, some of the WWE, yeah. they had all the licenses. Spider-Man. Oh my god. Every license you can imagine. I, I've have. never heard of the I, no, claim. I, the I remember now. I remember the logo. It's in my, yeah, the, it's in my it's imprinted in my brain. Yeah, Mortal Kombat's so when good. you said Spider-Man, it it, it hit. But yeah. um well yeah, so they were how were they struggling with all these games? Well, it turns out that Valley Midway owned the rights to Mortal Kombat and they decided not to renew the contract. Ah. And they owned NBA Jam. And and so what happened was that was their biggest hit. They made so much money, you have no idea. I'm sure. Billions of dollars of, of, of games and every kid had the game. Yeah, crazy. And Valley Midway decided they wanted to publish it themselves and didn't want to claim. And I don't know what exactly was going on because I was not involved. Next thing I know, the company's being liquidated. Usually you go to bankruptcy for reorganization. Mm-hmm. This one was not that. 
They were liquidating it. But there were so, some irregularities with the accounting. There huh. was some nasty stuff going on there. Very bad. Extremely bad. Company what were they liquidating? Art. Yeah, the company yeah. Okay. Owned there you go. Art. Real art in the building and this <laughs> and that. And no one knew what happened to the art and this. And the, they couldn't, the auditors couldn't certify the financials. It was more than a mess. So then I saw that in the Wall Street Journal and I thought about it and I said, huh, I know something about bankruptcies. Maybe, maybe I should make an offer. So I, you know, I go out and find who the trustee is. I make phone calls. At that time, you know, you yeah. could still use the internet, but I had to make phone calls. I found the court. It was in Oyster Bay, New York. I got hold of the trustee and I said, I want to make an offer. They said, really? Yeah. I, he said, but we're selling the inventory, the games to other people. I said, don't worry. You can sell this. I just want the name, the brands, the IP, whatever you have. $400,000. That's a lot of money. Yeah. I offered $100,000. There you go. And the guy said, that's a joke, right? I said, no, I'll be the first bidder. Here's my bid, $100,000. And like, it's not going to work. I said, I understand, but will you take my bid? So he calls me back. He said, fine, I'll send you the paperwork. So he sends me the paperwork, and I sign it, and I make a bid for $100,000. Mm-hmm. And that was like in March. I was chasing the guy for many months. Couldn't get a hold of him, and he called me back. And So I make it, I think, in May, some sometime like that. I make the offer, and I said, okay. When is the auction? He said, August 5th. And that was 2005. Hmm. Now, I don't know if you know, Oyster Bay, New York, everybody's gone August. It's kind of quiet over there. They go to the Hamptons. They go to the Hamptons. They go away. Anyway, it's pretty quiet. Yeah. So Okay. So I hire a lawyer who goes there on October on August 5th. I don't even want to show up. And you have a, at that time, you can buy a service to listen in. Hmm. So I said, okay, I'm going to listen in. Why not? It sounds fun. So the judge says, okay, a claim, okay, and claim entertainment looks at it. Okay, who are the bidders? So the trustee comes and says, we have one bidder. Okay, so where are the other bidders? We said, we have no other bidder. How could that be? How Is could there no one- anybody else here to bid? What about the founder of the company? Is he here? No. Are there other bidders? No. And the guy gets starting, the judge starting to get really annoyed. How come there are no bidders? Did you publish? Yeah, we published in the paper, the auction. It was well published, well done by the book. Yeah. No bidders. All right, done. $100,000. Was it just that ugly that no one else wanted to bid? Like I think people forgot to bid. Because really? the next day, there was tons of oppositions. People made oppositions. The guy who was doing the printing... The guys who bought the inventory, they wanted the name and the IP. They everybody wanted it. And you the have, next day, yeah. oppositions. Now it turns out the bankruptcy court is final. Yeah. And they can sue. And then, oh, they threatened to sue me. And then, hold on a second. How am I gonna get the claim.com URL? They didn't even know. The court didn't know how to get it to me. I bought it. They said it's as is. You know, when you buy something yeah, as is, yeah. you don't know. So I found finally through you know, on the internet, I found, I went on ICANN and I went on who, yeah. who is, yep. and I saw this who name owns. of a guy in yeah. Long Island and I call him up. I said, hey, and he says, who are you? I said, I'm a, the new, the new owner. owner of a claim. He said, what? 
I said, yeah, I'll send you the paper. So I, I faxed him the paperwork and he saw it. I said, I want my .com. He said, okay. <laughs> so he transferred to me. For who, free. He was, was he the founder? No, he was an employee. Someone who had just bought You know, the you have an employee who sets yeah. up the .com for right, you yeah, and yeah, they, yeah. they're the administrator. True. So he gave it to me. For, for, and he didn't ask for money? No. He said, then later he called me, he said, do you have a job? Because I need a job. <laughs> but I was in LA. And then I rebuilt Acclaim as an online game company. I went to uh, Korea and learned how to do free-to-play games. And I introduced you know, big free-to-play games in the US. And that started taking off, and we got almost 20 million players on oh. it. And you didn't have a non-compete with Activision? No, 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 no. And, and, and this whole time, if, you... there, was, there was seven years later, and yeah. no, there was no non-compete. And, and this is simultaneously while Bobby's still at Activision. Yeah, and, and by the way, Activision was not doing online games anyway. They were just yeah. packaged goods. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, and it started doing really well. We got up to, up to 20 million players, and I brought in the VC. First time ever, because one of my friends said, hey, you know, they're good. They can invest. So they, I put in a little bit of money, and they put in a bunch of money. And very quickly, things were not going well. We just were not seeing eye to eye. They just like, you know, they don't, you know we're a hit-driven business. They don't like hit-driven. It's like, you need recurring revenue. You need this. You need that. They didn't understand what we were doing. And they said something that was magical at the time. I didn't know. He says, you know, we're not going to co-invest in the next round. And when someone tells you that, it's basically a death sentence in the VC industry. Yeah. Because no one is going to invest if the guys who are in. Like what are happened? Going to yeah. What happened there? Why didn't yeah. they invest? And in I'm it? like, yeah. all right. So zigzag, zigzag. I found a way to sell it to a company that was part part of Disney, being acquired by Disney, and it ended up in Disney. And so I had a job at Disney for a few months. Uh, you know, VP of whatever. Not very interesting. And I, I went there. I, some of my guys were on the top management. I said, what am I doing here? They said, well, you know, we, we need a strategy for our video games. I said, I have one. I said, you need to fire all your studios because they're not working out. And you need to start licensing and you need to do this and that. And they're like, no. Okay. So I left. And, you know, several months later, a year later, they did that. They ended up getting rid of all the studios <laughs> because it was unusable. Yeah. But you know, I was the was not political. You had right. to first go through the politics. Too much, yeah. too much bureaucracy. I right. mean, it was not. I was in the wrong place. But when I left, that's when I came out of the the idea of, hey, I need to invest into entrepreneurs. And this is the what was this like 2010? That was 2010, 2011. Okay. 2011. And by this time, you know, you mentioned VCs and venture capital. It's starting to, I'm, I'm guessing, grow. There's like the industry's growing. There's a lot of, you know, Sand Hill Roads, you know, full of investors and VCs and startups are starting to like pop up everywhere. Right. It was like, all Sand Hill Road. And it's like post GFC. Yep. Post GFC. It was all Sand Hill Road. Mm -hmm. They ruled. Yep. And there are tons of startups and everything you can imagine. But you're still in LA. I'm in LA. I'm not moving. Yeah. So next thing I decide is I read about Y Combinator. I'm saying, this is fantastic. How come we don't have it here? So I decide I'm going to- they must have started right around that time, right? No, they started about a couple years before. Yeah, 08, 09. Yeah. Great timing to start a company. Yeah. And I decided, okay, I'm going to help entrepreneurs. And I'm going to do exactly what Y Combinator is doing. 
And so I decided, okay, I'll, you know, we'll invest $20,000 just to get started and we'll have demo days. And we did that. Mm-hmm. Just you, no Bobby. No. <clears throat> and at the, at the time, uh, what what was Y Combinator's like success rate at that time? I'm guessing like Airbnb, I think, just started around that time. Like some of these companies right. were just starting I out. think they had a lot of write-up about, I think there was Reddit that was successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They had a few things already starting. I mean, they, they had in the end massive success but they had a bunch of good successes enough for you to see paul graham who was running it was very visible lots of information so i got to read all that and i even got to attend one of the demo days Mm -hmm. what i wanted to do is la you know why common air was not interested in los angeles yeah they were they were interested in san francisco they in fact they required teams to move right Mm. They are probably recruiting from Stanford and Berkeley. everywhere, yeah. but they required people. People were moving from all, all yeah, like over Ale- the country. Alexis and his partner, I think they had to move to yeah, uh, San, yeah, to to be able to go San to Y Combinator. You move, and then hopefully you stay there, and then you get VC. Yeah. And this is the early days of Start Engine, is or is that what it was called at the time as well? I, so it started as Start Engine. So I yeah. found an ad that was about a car called Start Your Engine or something like that, and I said Start Engine sounds like a good name. We're an engine for, yeah, for companies, and, and you've got to start your I, engine. And I was able to buy the Dior URL, start engine for like ten grand. That's and a I big one. Found a guy in the Caribbean to make the logo, and <laughs> off we go. Yeah. So so, but at this time, you know, accelerators and incubators and these things were weren't really a thing. Like they were just kind of like Y Combinator. Like it was just starting to happen. It was brand new. Yeah. So Y Combinator was the only one. And then just then was Techstars in Boulder and nothing mm-hmm. in LA. I came up with the idea, but at the same time I did, three other groups did it too. Mm-hmm. And Amplify, Marker Lab, Launchpad all jumped in. And we we're all advertising, hey, come to our program. Do you think they all jumped in off the success of Y Combinator as well? Or do you think something else was happening in the ecosystem? I think it's absolutely Y Combinator. There's oh. no doubt in my mind. Yeah. They just sort of pioneered this new they way. They proved it. Yeah. And I think Techstars was because of Y Combinator as well. Y Combinator was really the inspiration. And the and the the appeal was that you could be not just a early investor, but the earliest investor, the one who is right there building with you, creating with you. That was so appealing to as an investor that like you you're, you know, that's like as pre 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 seed as it gets, you're just there from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I mean, people use pre seed seed. Yeah, you're just a piece of paper. You showed up. We had people who had demos, no demos, just people. And we, I, 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 I partners with a, a friend called Paul Kessler, and we were meeting with entrepreneurs, and we thought they had passion, they were smart, they were interesting, and we really like them we would we would say yes we would invest and we'd and, give them the same day to make a decision and you were using your own capital at the time um yeah it was my capital it was paul's capital and some friends mm. a few other people yeah and a little fund tiny yeah so yeah. we're like all right let's do it so we were writing checks twenty thousand. now why come in there start increasing the check size I think they started twenty seven thousand, and it went to 50, more than fifty. Yeah. And, then and were you guys taking an X percentage of the company as well up front? Yeah, we took ten percent of the company. So 20, more than 000. Y Combinator, even. Yes. Yeah. And we had warrants too, mm-hmm. so that on the next round we get some extra shares. 
So it was like the safe model that basically Y Combinator started. It was not safe. We it was a price round. Okay. And was preferred. And it was and it had and we had the warrants. Mm-hmm. We thought, hey, you know what? If the terms are right, if one hits, we'll do very well. Mm-hmm. And we did classes of 20. So the first class in 2012 was 20 people. Mm-hmm. And then we had uh, 10 in, 2000, in January and then 10, I think, in June or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we, we were doing classes of 10, 5 to 10, whatever. And over three years, we did 59. Mm-hmm. It was great. Except most of them couldn't raise any money. Right. So we were not Y Combinator by not even any stretch of imagination. We mm-hmm. couldn't get all the angel investors and VCs from San Francisco to come down here. They didn't. So we were left with the, U- the LA people. And at that time, the LA people were not that, you didn't have enough cash from right. their other investments or, or successes. Right. They weren't tech in. wealthy yet. No. They and were probably so, in like real estate or other alternate like right. non-tech. Yeah. We had doctors, yeah. we had lawyers. It turns out it was bad. And I didn't understand why. I couldn't understand. It was just hard for me to to get my head around this and say, well, maybe we didn't pick the right people. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it was the wrong idea. Or maybe something was not right. And when you see all these entrepreneurs who are discouraged, and it still happens all the time. Discouraged because they can't continue. They can't raise money. They, they stop. They quit. That's really bad. You know, my mission was to help LA become a tech city. And I thought if we could get them started here, they would stay and they would build businesses. Now, it turns out out of the 59, let's say 20 could raise some money. So 40 went. Out of the 10, there's 10 survivors. And then one sold for a lot of money and we made you know i think on our twenty thousand five million you know for one company and then That's another a one good sold. return yeah but we didn't know what we were doing right but you know the first one paid for everything then and more the second one paid for even more than everything right and but i was not interested in that i was interested in the people who couldn't raise money and there were women who were leading it and there were minorities who were leading it. And it was just a disaster. It was really bad. And so being a, not a good investor as a professional investor, you know, like, hey, where did you graduate from? Stanford, great, check. Yeah. Okay, what's your age? 22, yeah. check. Which bank did you work in investment banking? In? Right, yeah. Where check. did you do consulting? Yeah, yep. I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. So... You because, X, you X those. Oh, Stanford. No <laughs> investment. Well, <laughs> no I, investment. I had a ton of women entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. In fact, our best investment is, is, is this woman, Nancy Liu, who started Nplug. And she's, yeah. we've she's had Nancy one of amazing. our early, early guests. She's amazing. She's a yeah. superstar. Mm-hmm. And then we have Katie John, Warner Johnson from Carbon 38, superstar. Right. But, you know, investors were not interested in that. Anyway, so I decided, you know what? Something's wrong. And because I'm really an operator, entrepreneur, innovator, I need to change the system. And that is the discovery. This is how I I discovered truly what I was interested in, is to change how finances work. 
and create a true alternative to the VC system. Because right. I saw VC system as a biased system. It's basically pension funds giving money to a VC who launders it into these Stanford grads, yeah. mostly male. Yeah. And I was like, this is silly. And it's, I mean, that's still happening. Yes. Yeah. In a massive way. But the, by the way, in California, a new law came out. Next April, they have to all uh, publish who are the founders they invest in. Yeah. Guess Diversity. When I publish my numbers, we're going to be more than number one. Mm-hmm. We're going to be massive number one. We have 10% of our entrepreneurs are black mm-hmm. and 25% are women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. On Start Engine. Yep. Yep. We're going to be the most diversified by a massive scale. Do you think that that's going to hurt the traditional VCs out there? Well, I think once the pension funds realize what's going on, I right. think they're going to ask. They're going to people going to ask questions. Right? Why are you guys giving it to these guys and not? Well, yeah, they're going to ask questions. It's like, oh, hold a second. Who are your pension holders? Mostly women. Right. So anyway, I decided to change finance. Now the problem with finance is that it's highly regulated. There are rules, laws. You have and to be an accredited regulators. investor, minimum 250000 Well, there's more than that. More than I that. was but not yeah, interested yeah. in wealthy investors. Yeah. I didn't think that was the market. I thought the, the Joe Mainstream investor, the Joe Main Street investor, is the right investor. Why? Because if your neighbor started Apple, you couldn't invest in it. Apple was started in a blue-collar neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You couldn't invest. How cruel is that? Mm-hmm. That's because of 1932 Act, because they tried to say, look, unless you register your shares and become a public company, no, only wealthy people can invest. It is a cruel rule, but it's meant to protect the yeah. ordinary investor. Quote, unquote, protect. Yeah. yeah well, protect yeah. them because, you know, if you put all your money, savings in the company and it fails, right. you're in trouble. Right. Wealthy people, eh, they'll is survive. The, is On the idea the that the wealthy people are also educated enough to know how to spend that money. never was part of the rule. No, Education I think just a higher not. risk tolerance. Yeah. So that if they fail, it's not as big of a deal as if somebody was making $50,000 a year fails. It, the rule Reg D simply was created with the notion that if you can afford to lose or not the money, that's all. Right, risk. And if you're wealthy, you supposedly have better means to rebuild your money. Right. The likelihood of you making that money back. Right. Yep. So so how does crowdfunding come into all of this? So again, I'm I don't know anything about that. So I read in the paper about a thing called the Jobs Act that just was voted in. Twenty April twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. But no, I, no, no, I'm sorry. Twelve. Twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. Correct. I don't yeah. know what I'm dreaming. Yeah. April twenty twelve. Yeah. The Jobs Act gets voted in. And I'm like, what's that? Jobs Act sounds very boring. This, this is the Obama time. Right, Obama yes. signed it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was bipartisan rule. Right, so yeah. it was not a political thing. Right, but no one cared. No one read about it. No one likes bipartisan stuff. We like partisan. Well, stuff. The, the, exactly the Affordable Care right. Act that came right. out and became that we care massive, yeah. massive. Right. Yeah. News and information. Right. Jobs Act, nothing, not a peep. So I read it. So I read the article. So guess what I do? I go on the Congress and I get the act out and I read the act. And I'm blown away. This is a revolution. How come no one's talking about it? This is going to be a revolution. It's going to create hundreds of brokerage firms who are going to be selling shares to everybody. 
every startup is going to be able to use it. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. It's going to be massive. It's going to be a revolution. It's as big as the 1932 Act. Well, guess what? No one cared. Not only did no one care, everybody told me, hey, Howard, not only the SEC will never release the rule, they'll hold it in because they're noted, notorious for holding things for 10 years and they'll never release it. But then, if even if you do it, all the investors who come in, if they lose their money, they're going to sue you. So it's a very bad idea. You should not do it. What did it even look like? What did, what did doing it look like? I mean, was it just the opening idea up was, the floodgates and saying everyone invest? Well, the idea was to sell shares in, in early stage companies to ordinary investors. So have a website, say, here, here's a company who is you know wanting to raise some investment, put in whatever check, however much you want, 20 bucks, 200 bucks, 2,000 bucks, and issue stock? Right. Share, My uh, idea options, was, I'm going to take Kickstarter. Yeah. You, you know what happened? What happened really at Kickstarter that really annoyed me was I loved Kickstarter, but when Oculus Rift came out and you know, 7,000 people are pledging $3 million to get their Oculus. And next thing you know, unbeknown to them, the founder goes to Andreessen, gets $80 million. Then next thing you know, in the paper they read, they read that this thing got sold for $2 billion and they got nothing. Yeah. They were the first, they were, they proved the concept. They were the backers. They were the guys who really created that idea yeah, that no equity VR, return. they yeah. got nothing. Yeah. In fact, they got their headset after the company was sold to <laughs> Facebook for $2 billion, or Meta now, right? Right. right. This is Palmer Lucky. Palmer Lucky. But yeah. to me, that was not right. That mm. was unjust. And so I decided I'm going to take the Kickstarter model and I'm going to make it a, a platform like Kickstarter but instead of giving T-shirts and product, we're going to give shares. We're going to issue shares to people. And I'm, I'm going to do it even better. I'm going to allow people to use credit cards to buy shares. Mm. And that is the beginning of the journey I am today, which is Start Engine as a crowdfunding platform. You know, we, start, we launched in June 2015. The crowdfunding platform. The crowdfunding. It was just a website. And we had a car company. We said, hey, we're going to make a car, low-cost car. We need investors. And we raised for them in two weeks $17 million. <laughs> but then we were not a broker-dealer, so we couldn't get a, a commission, but we just get a fee for doing the work. And I said to myself, this is going to be big. Yeah. I mean, the first company? Yeah. This is crazy. What company was that? It was called Elio Motors. Mm. And so, you know what? I, 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 then I said to myself, hold on a second. Why isn't everybody doing this? What about all the other financial companies? They should do it. They're all brokers. Right. They, you know, they they raise money for companies. They're, they're yeah, they're investment two, bakers. There's two, three thousand broker dealers out there, yeah. and then you know, some massive ones. Not no one. We started raising money for companies who want to raise a hundred thousand dollars. No one's interested in that. So I saw a blue ocean. Yeah, here's the blue ocean. Any company that wants to raise under $10 million, there's no one there to offer it, or $5 million. On the consumer side, meaning like retail investors who are essentially buying into like the shares or the crowdfunding, do you think that there was like a hump that you had to get over in terms of trust of like, well, your money's well spent here, your money's not going to, you're not going to lose your money, it's not a scam type of thing? Well, that that's important to have a reputation. So we decided... 
that we're going to do everything by the book. Like the educational piece, because you're just finding out about this. You're like, right. why is no one else doing this? What about the people you're trying to reach? So and- we have education <laughs> material on our on our page that explains what a share is and how you yeah. invest and what happens. And so the journey started with a website that said, okay, if you're a company and you need money, we can help you raise money directly from the general public, legally. The first one took us many months to get going. The next one took another two months. And and then suddenly we can do it in a matter of weeks. We had to improve the technology. We had there's so much we had to do. And it took us from opening up a website where now we have an app, a website, and we've raised over a billion dollars for companies. Mm. Over one billion. And we have close to 2 million users and half a million active investors. It's insane. Do you often see the same folks investing in different We ways? have people yeah. who invest. I, have, I talk to investors because I like to talk to them. 20, 30 investments, some 10, 5. And obviously, I would imagine that they've seen some success as a result or they wouldn't keep coming back. I mean, are you able to share some of those successes that these, I guess, quote-unquote retail investors have had? Well, it's hard to to know when they sell shares because when the company goes public right. and we had several who went public, I don't know if they held it, sold it at right. the opening. It's hard to tell. Right, right, right. How does that convert if they own shares of a company through Start Engine and then it goes public? Once we issue the shares, they own the shares in their own name. Got it. And then when the company goes public, they, they hire a transfer agent who will take those shares and convert them into a public shareholding that you can put into a brokerage firm and then you can sell them. Do you guys help with that as well? No, we don't do the plumbing for the end. Got it. We do everything until a company wants to be sold mm-hmm. or go public. Mm-hmm. But we don't sell them and we don't take them public. Got it's it. a different skill set. Right. You, you got to stay in your lane, mm-hmm. especially in finance. If you think about the world of finance, it's pretty complicated. And I think we need to be the best at raising the money from the, you know, the $100,000 to... 50 million. We have to be the best at that, in that lane. Range, right. But if you if someone says, look, I need 200 million, we're the wrong guys. Right. 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 Yeah. Are you still investing in these deals yourself as well? No. There's a conflict of interest in that. We're not permitted to be investing in the same deals. Or we can't pick and choose because that would be a conflict. Because I would say, okay, well, these are the deals I'm investing in. It's just right. unfair. So uh, even as a re- retail investor, Howard Marks individual, you can't invest in the deals that are being funded through Start Engine. No, because that's that's the rules in the set by the SEC and FINRA. Yeah. Um, you you that's a conflict. You can't Got do it. it. Got it. Got it. So you're more focused on just scaling Start Engine and what is what does that look like for the next half decade? I think we just got started. We're in the first inning. You know, my goal is to get 20, 30 million investors Offer everything but public securities, you know, Apple stock. I'm not interested in that. Mm-hmm. First of all, I don't think there's any money to be made on that. I want to offer tens of thousands of companies. I've also built a trading platform where you can trade those companies inside of our system. So they, the companies, you don't have to wait till the company goes public to, yeah. to actually sell your shares. You can actually offer them. And we've at launched a, that at a higher price point, like I a secondary imagine. market. You can launch yeah. it at a higher price, at a lower price, whatever you want. It's a secondary market. So we built a primary market. We issue shares for companies, and we allow them to be traded, 
all in one black box. Right. Yeah. You know how some food processing plants have like an FDA representative in their plant? Is there a version of that with the SEC and companies like Start Engine where there's almost like this, you know, constant oversight? Yes. It's called FINRA. And they audit us every year and they talk to us every week. Mm. And they're always there. And, and is that something that you're, is that part of your role? Yeah. Well, it's, I have a chief compliance officer. Yeah. We have seven or eight attorneys in-house. Yeah. We're the only crowdfunding platform in the country that has that kind of investment. Everybody else outsources it or has one person. And, mm-hmm. and we, see, I, I've made a fundamental decision. First, my mission is to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. So I really want to make that happen. Secondly, we want to do the right thing. And it's unusual in the financial world, this idea of doing the right thing. You know, greed has ways of seeping in and and changing behaviors. We need to fight that. So no one in our company is allowed to invest on our platform. Hmm. So we don't want people playing games and doing insider stuff. You've heard that in the whole crypto world all the time. Yep, yep. What's your affinity with the color red? I noticed the car you pulled in, your shoes, your band on your Apple Watch. Is there like a story there? Or you just I don't know. <laughs> I love red. <laughs> Red's a good color. My wife told me that uh, I shouldn't get a red car because I'm too old for it. <laughs> Sixty one. And then the dealer, I mean the Tesla guy, you know, is not a dealer. He's he says, you know what? Good news is she won't be able to drive it. <laughs> Unless it's self driving. No, but it's because it's red. She doesn't oh, like the red. She doesn't like it, yeah. So what do you do when you're not building Start Engine and you know investing and all the stuff that you're still working on? Outside of my passion for building Start Engine into this really, I think, a very important mm-hmm. company for our country, you know, our, our industry for our country to really create that alternative to VC. Yeah. I'm, I play golf. Mm-hmm. I noticed the foot joy socks. I was about to say golf. Uh, I play I play golf. <laughs> I also play poker. I do all sorts of things um, outside of work. How much of golf and poker do you think translates to business in terms of what you learn and what you pick up? I mean, I, I feel like we can probably go down a really deep conversation here. But. Well, for me, the way I look at golf, I, I don't think I'm a very good player. I'm decent. I'm competitive. I win tournaments because, not because I'm a better player, it's because I'm able to focus and stay in the game. And I can't be, I don't flinch. And the same as poker, I don't flinch. I feel like both games have like this mental thing where you're like almost competing with yourself and you're, you're, while also competing against others, it's like this interesting, you're not just competing, it's not a one-way competition essentially. Where you have to like manage your mental mental as much as your physical, right? Because that's when you make a mistake. Yeah. So in golf or poker, if you flinch, you you lose. You know that. You kind of knew it before yeah. even you made that decision whether it's right. to fold or to go all in. You know you made a mistake yeah. because you didn't follow the script. Right. Well, and the same thing in golf. Howard, this has been um, just a, such a enjoyable conversation with you. We can't thank you enough for coming here and sharing your incredible story with us. Um, you know, I feel like you know this is probably the longest, if not one of the longest uh, episodes we've done, just because there's so much to unpack here. But uh, it's been a it's been a true pleasure. Thank you very much. 
I, I love sharing ideas. And I hope entrepreneurs who, who listen to it will consider crowdfunding. I think it's, it's a great alternative. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Howard. <laughs>